The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that change them forever. We are continuing on with this season's theme all about serial killers. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. Yes. Um, so this was a story that has been suggested to me by several people, including multiple Patreon supporters. And we're finally going to do that story today. It's called A Husband's Secret, The Victims of Herbert Baumeister. In the early 1990s, young men from the gay bar scene of Indianapolis were disappearing. This is just a few years after the arrest of Larry Eiler. Okay. Okay. I get so it. it's like in the same general area, too. Yeah. Uh, the. Indiana LGBTQ community was once again being targeted. The missing men received very little media coverage outside of the gay community and the gay newspapers. Was it possible that once again, gay men in the Midwest were being hunted? Was it possible they were being hunted all along by yet another serial killer? Like, it's it's really shitty that we have to preface that Oh no! They were they, like they didn't get any media coverage except for only only the gay newspapers and the gay media. Like yeah, th- like that. It was still such a stereotypical or a stigma. Yeah, a stigma. That's what I was looking yeah. for of that time. That oh no no they're they're homosexual. We cannot. D-. It was basically their deaths were blamed on their lifestyle, right? Because of who they chose to who they who they loved, right? Like. It's messed up. Right. On May 28th, 1993, 20-year-old John Lee Bayer, known as Johnny, went missing from Indianapolis. John was last seen in Indianapolis where he frequented the gay bar scene. On July 6th, 1993, Jeffrey Allen Jones disappeared from Indianapolis. Jeff was 31 at the time that he disappeared. Richard Douglas Hamilton disappeared a few weeks later on July 31st, 1993. Richard was a 20-year-old gay man from Indianapolis. Alan Livingston, age 28, disappeared on August 7th, 1993. Manuel Resendez, age 31, disappeared from a downtown bar in Indianapolis the same night. Manuel was a children's counselor from Lafayette, Indiana. So, like, within three or four months, we've got five missing men. Right. And like you said, this was just, what, maybe a couple years after? Larry Eiler. Larry Eiler. Like, the last serial killer of gay men. Right. Like, holy shit. It's pretty scary, I would think, to be in the gay community in the Indiana, Chicago area in the late 80s. Well, you said that they were, like, Indianapolis down there, too. Right. Like, fuck. Okay, let's continue. Although members of the LGBTQ community were becoming increasingly aware of the multiple disappearances of young men, the widespread media largely ignored these missing person cases. And most of the time it was portrayed as, you know, they probably ran away or they probably went off to Los Angeles or somewhere outside the Midwest where... Maybe they wouldn't feel as judged. I mean, basically, they got swept under the rug. You know, nobody was too concerned other than, of course, their families. On June 6, 1994, Alan Broussard disappeared after leaving a gay bar in Indianapolis. Stephen Sperlin Hale, age 28, went missing on April 1st, 1994. So that's seven now. Yeah. Stephen Hale was 28 years old, and, um, you know, like I said, he went missing that summer of 94 as well. So now it's been like a year, and we've got... Seven people now. Seven. Stephen was last seen outside a library, which was kind of interesting because he didn't meet the same M.O. as the rest of these disappearances. 
And it's important to keep in mind these are disappearances, not yet murders. murders. Because they don't they, they don't know body. where they're at. Right. Um, Roger Allen Goodlett, age 33, disappeared on July 22nd, 1994. He had spent the day with his mother, helping her assemble a bench in her garden and playing with his new kitten. That night, he went out to a bar and never came home. This was kind of the turning point because Roger's mother reported him missing the next day on July 23rd. Police told his mother that they didn't really consider him a missing person until he was gone for 30 days. So I guess under Indiana policy law at that time, the person was not considered missing until they were missing 30 days. For adults. Yes, for adults. Yeah, I just wanted to, to, just to clarify, just, yeah, it's for adults. His mother was not content with this, and she was not going to wait 30 days. She knew her son. She knew the next day something was wrong. So she hired her own private investigator and started her own search. She put up flyers, and she learned that friends saw Roger getting into a vehicle outside a bar. The vehicle was believed to have Ohio license plates. Detective Mary Wilson had become concerned with the eight missing men, and she was thinking that they must have met foul play. Um, It was difficult to prove, though, since they were all missing. It's not like we have a crime scene. We, We don't know where they're at. There's no bodies. There's no evidence. There's really nothing to go on. The private investigator that was hired by Roger's mother worked with Detective Wilson from the Indianapolis Police Department to try to solve the case. And a lot of the other detectives even told Mary Wilson, like, you're wasting your time. But nevertheless, her and the private investigator sort of worked together. They tried to find links to determine, you know, what happened to these men. You know, were they connected? Did they know each other? Did they run in the same circles, which, of course, they did. Um, I don't know that they necessarily knew each other, but most of them frequented the gay bars in Indianapolis. They asked the FBI to create a profile of the suspected kidnapper and killer, or what they thought was probably a killer. Right. The FBI profile predicted that the perpetrator was a white male with above-average intelligence They suspected he was in his mid-40s and likely bisexual. Soon, a friend of Roger Goodlett came forward with a clue. He told a story about a man he met at a bar in Indianapolis. He said the man was often in the gay bars, always alone, and he never really seemed comfortable. Like, he just seemed out of place. It wasn't normal. Right. One night... The informant approached him at the bar and noticed that he was looking at a missing poster of Roger. But he said, like, it wasn't like he was just looking at it, trying to sort of study it the way that somebody would, you know, just in case they happened to see somebody. You know what I mean? Like, he was staring at it in a way that made this informant feel really uncomfortable. And he instantly thought that this man had something to do with Roger's disappearance. The informant said that he felt curious about this gentleman, and so he started a conversation with him. The man said he was a caretaker for his boss's property. He said that the owner was renovating the home before moving in. He told the man that they could go back to his boss's property. The informant agreed and went with the man to a property in the rural area north of Indianapolis in Hamilton County. The informant wasn't sure exactly where he was, but he did see a sign that said something about farms as they drove up a long circular driveway. So the property had a sign, something about a farm. Right. Okay. Now, this is a huge property. This Mm -hmm. is not like some little trailer in the woods. This was an 18-acre property, very nice house, almost considered like a mansion, The home appeared to be cluttered and lived in, though, which was odd because this man said that they were renovating before they moved in. But it really looked like somebody lived there. The informant instantly was like, well, I know he was lying to me because obviously somebody lived in that house. After touring the home, which was filled with mannequins, 
The two went to the basement where there was an indoor swimming pool in the walkout basement. Because a home full of mannequins is never indicative of, of like something creepy as fuck. Right. Right. Um, and he asked the guy about the mannequins and he said, well, I don't like to be alone. Oh, fuck. Right. That's creepy. Oh, my God. Like my skin's crawling a little bit with just like, I don't want to be alone. Like it reminds me of like Will Smith in that movie. Uh, oh, God. What was the, the, the vampire movie he was in? I have no the idea. zombie movies. I have no idea. Oh, God. I can't remember. Because he would pose mannequins like all throughout this. Like he was the last man on earth. Yeah. Quote, unquote. And like he would pose mannequins all around the city just so he wouldn't go mad. Hmm. I don't know. So, like, when I'm telling you this is the nice house, you go down in the basement and it's like a walkout basement with an indoor pool. Like, this is a very nice house. The two men went swimming and the man started to explain kind of what he was into. He said he liked to be strangled and he enjoyed erotic asphyxiation. Yeah, I don't think that needs much of a explanation, hopefully. Um, he asked the informant to strangle him and the informant said that he complied. He just kind of went with it. Why? I'm not really sure. He said he strangled the man until he passed out, but then he came to, and then he wanted to reciprocate and strangle the informant. And for some reason, the informant agreed and allowed the man to strangle him. As he was being strangled, the informant realized the man wasn't stopping. He wasn't letting up, and he became fearful for his life. He told the informant that he enjoyed watching the eyes roll into the back of men's heads and watching their lips turn blue. Little creepy. Just a tad. Just a tad. He pretended to fall unconscious, the informant that is, at which time the man stopped strangling him. The man seemed almost panicked and was relieved when he realized that the informant was still alive. And that's when he told them about accidents in the past where he never really said, I killed people, but he said, there's been accidents. There's been bad nights. And I didn't want this to be one of them. Jesus. Right? The informant told him he would go to authorities and the man laughed and said, who is going to believe someone like you? And that just says it all, doesn't it? Like, that is why I feel like certain groups are targeted because the stigma, nobody believed them. Right. And at that point in time, there was, yeah, and we saw it in the past, you know, with our, not in the past, but with none of the other other disappearances being reported and like by right. any major news outlets or anything like that like no it really wasn't gonna yeah and so he basically like was arrogant enough you know to be like whatever nothing you do is gonna stick to me anyway the man seemed convinced that that stigma of being a gay man in the midwest would allow him to continue his devious ways without consequence Detective Wilson and the private investigator felt the informant was their first big clue. They believed everything that he said. They tried to find the property described, but they had a lot of trouble and they weren't able to find it. The informant didn't really know where it was. He just remembered seeing the sign that said farm. They tried and tried, but couldn't find it. But they continued to pursue the informant, asking um, him if he would help and Actually, the man was also pursuing this informant and was asking him when they could have another hookup. He wanted to meet up again. And the informant was like, yeah, I'm not really going to want to do that. But the private investigator and the detective really wanted him to so that they could figure out who this was. Um, you would think because they were having phone calls that maybe they could find out that way. But at this point in time, cell phones were not traceable like they are now. And so there was no way for them to trace those calls. The only chance they had was to catch him was for this informant to see him again. Right. But like, if I'm that informant, I'm like, uh, no. Right. Like, I know that this is your only way of really catching the guy, but uh, no. Well, he eventually agreed to do it. 
But then the man didn't show up after pursuing him. So that led authorities to think that somehow the man had caught on that the informant was in fact an informant and had kind of got spooked. On April 1st, 1995, Michael Frederick Kern disappeared from a gay bar in Indianapolis. In August of 1995, Jerry Williams Comer, age 35, disappeared. It had been a year at this point since the informant had his encounter with this suspect. The informant was in a bar when he saw the man again. He was not going to let this guy see him, though. He was very careful so that he could watch the guy leave and see what car he left in without the man seeing him. And so he did that, and he was able to write down his license plate number and give it to the detectives. The license plate on the vehicle was registered to Herbert Baumeister of Hamilton County, Indiana. Herbert Baumeister was born April 7, 1947, in Indianapolis. He was the oldest of four children and the son of a successful anesthesiologist. The family was pretty affluent in the community, and Herb's childhood was pretty idyllic. But Herb was not so much. He had shown some troubling signs from about the time he entered puberty. A classmate remembers him taking a dead crow off the road and putting it on his teacher's desk. That's a little creepy, don't you think? Just a little. He also wondered aloud to his friends. He said he was very interested in knowing what human urine tasted like. That is ridiculous. It's called urophilia. <laughs> Oh, I didn't know. I didn't want to know that there was an actual name <laughs> attached to that kind of stuff. There like, was. Um, Herb went to a private school, and this private school is really big on athletics. But he wasn't an athlete, so he never really fit in. He wasn't very popular, and his father got really concerned about his strange behavior and sent him for a psychological evaluation. Herbert was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and schizophrenia. Herb kept to himself. He didn't really date in high school, but after high school, he had plans of becoming a doctor like his father. He started college majoring in anatomy, but he dropped out his freshman year. He went back a few times, like one semester at a time, only to drop out again. You know who else did that? Larry Eiler. Yeah. Kind of weird, right? Well, I mean, it's very, like, this whole story kind of how they're kind of kind of mirroring each other, you know? Uh -huh. Like, it's not a full mirror, but it's, fuck, it's close. Yeah. Herbert met a fellow student at Indiana University named Julie. Julie and Herbert were Republican students in a conservative state during a time when peace and love ruled. So this is like the 60s. And in an interview, Julie says, you know, Republican students really didn't speak out a lot because everybody was just kind of like doing drugs and having peace. Like that was the college right. experience. They were the odd ones because they weren't. They were conservatives. Right. Um, they enjoyed each other's company. And so the, eventually they got engaged and they married in 1971. Herbert and Julie started a family that included two daughters and a son. Herbert never finished school, but was given a job at the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles. It was basically said that his father's standing in the community is kind of what got him that job. He wouldn't have gotten it on his own. He was known to act really odd at work. He sent out Christmas cards of himself dressed in drag to his coworkers. I mean, if it's if you're trying to be funny with your Christmas cards, I could kind of see it. He urinated on his boss's desk. Never mind. <laughs> Never. Europhilia or whatever. Yeah. Well, somehow, even though he's pissing on his boss's desk, he like, gets promoted to program director. How the hell does that work? Right? Like, <laughs> I hate you so much. But, like, if anybody else whipped their their junk out and just started playing, like, oh, singing in the rain. Get, like, you're under arrest for indecent exposure and you're fired. Like, I, mean, I don't know which I one of those. I hate to say it, but 
her Bowmeister is kind of the definition of white rich privilege. I guess. You know, he came it from sounds... an affluent family. And so he kind of got away with some really fucked up things. Right. And again, not only did he get away with it, he gets promoted. He did really weird things, though, even after he got promoted. One of his coworkers said he kept a cake in the filing cabinet because he wanted to watch it decay. Like, how many more weird things are you going to keep bringing up about this gentleman? Oh, it goes on. Because that, like, I don't know. I, what would be the point of that? To I watch it know. decay? I don't know. Like, it's not like this is, like, those uh, uh, McDonald's meals you see in, like, the teacher's classrooms where it's under a cover. And it's like, oh, look, it never decays after so many days. Right. You know, like, this is just a man keeping a cake and just watching it rot. Yeah, it's just weird. He eventually did get fired. And do you want to take a stab in the dark of how he got fired? Shitting on something. Like, that would be the next <laughs> like That's step. close. He urinated on a letter that was being sent to the governor of Indiana. Awesome. And so he finally gets himself fired. And basically, despite all of this crazy shit, he's described as eccentric. Just eccentric. Like, that's that's what we're going with. Is yeah. Just he's eccentric. eccentric. That, 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 that's all we're doing. Like, okay. Julie left her teaching job to take care of the couple's children. But after Herbert lost his job, um, the two of them kind of went together and they founded a thrift store. With a loan from Herb's mother, they opened a Save-A-Lot in downtown Indianapolis, which was like a consignment store. Sort of like a Goodwill. Okay. They partnered, actually, with a well-respected charity, and they were very successful. The family was able to achieve financial stability. They sent their children to nice private schools. They were so successful. In fact, they actually opened a, a second location. And in 1992, they bought a $1 million property in Hamilton County, Indiana. The 18-acre property included a wooded area, four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and a riding stable. The couple felt the property was perfect for their children and their family. It was called Fox Hollow Farms. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Despite having a beautiful property, the couple allowed the home to become very cluttered. They weren't manicuring the the lawn and the landscaping very well so it kind of even though it was this big beautiful property it wasn't well cared for and herbert had several mannequins that he posed throughout the house but he's just a sec eccentric right he's eccentric yes Julie and Herbert did not have a great marriage, though. Despite outward appearances of them kind of having this perfect little family and living the American dream, Julie later admitted that her and Herbert had only had sexual intercourse six times in the 25 years that they were married. And they had three kids, so, I mean... Good odds. Half I mean, the time they had sex, they had a baby. I mean, 50% shot. I mean, that's good odds. Kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Julie also said she never saw her husband naked, ever. Apparently, Herb was embarrassed because he was very thin and he didn't like his body. And so he would wear pajamas every single night and he would get in between the sheets so Julie couldn't see him. Behind closed doors, this family wasn't nearly as perfect as they seemed from the outside. I, I would think not. I mean, it doesn't sound very... He's a weirdo. No, he's eccentric. Yes, he's eccentric. Sure. In early 1995, Julian Herbert's son told his mother that he and his friend had found bones in the woods on the property. Now, mind you, his son's like a young teenager. Julie remembers following her son out there and seeing a skull and some other bones. She didn't really know what to do, so she waited for Herbert to come home, and she took him out into the woods to show him what their son had found. And Herb said that these were bones that belonged to his father, and they were used for dissection and medical studies. Okay, I like, I'm, really? 
Really, we're just tossing we're just tossing bodies out in the middle of the woods. Well, Julie said she believed her husband that he was kind of a pack rat, and she believed that he probably had them in the garage and then threw them away. And he said he would dispose of them somewhere else. And she was just like, "Okay." Jeez. She said she went back a few days later, and the bones were gone. Okay. That's weird, right? It's eccentric. Like, I don't know if you can see human bones and just believe that. Like, I understand. It's a weird explanation. It's a very weird explanation, especially, oh, they're my fathers who use them for dissection and examining. His father is a doctor, but still. uh, That's fine. But, I mean, this isn't like the, like, 20s or 30s or. And she's not a stupid woman right like she's a college graduate right so nevertheless once they track this license plate from the informant to her bowmeister detective mary wilson goes to the save a lot store and starts to question herb she was surprised to see a thin sort of feminine looking man she felt that her questions about him being in a gay bar scene made him really nervous and uncomfortable. He denied ever being there, but the detective challenged him by telling him that his vehicle was identified. That's why they're there. So they know that he was at the gay bar scene at some point in time. He became really embarrassed and said that his family did not know about his extracurricular activities being, I guess, like hooking up with men. And, but he denied being aware of the whereabouts of any of these missing men, and he ref- refused to allow them to search his property. And at this point, they don't really have enough evidence to search his, to get a search warrant. Right. I mean, there's, you have speculation at, right. at very best. I mean, they don't, definitely don't have enough. So Mary approaches Julie Baumeister thinking that, Maybe she'll give consent to search the property. Julie was absolutely stunned by the allegations that her husband may have killed someone. They told her they were investigating a um, homosexual homicide. It's so weird to me that they described things in the 80s and 90s, because they described it that way with Eiler, too, as homosexual homicide. Like, you don't ever hear them say heterosexual homicide. Right. It's just homicide. It's just bizarre to me that it is. they labeled it that way. It is. She said, you know, she had such a hard time wrapping her head around what they were trying to tell her. Um, but she had talked to Herb and he had said, no, don't let anybody search this. And, you know, she just kind of went with what her husband said. And so she told them, no, they weren't allowed to search. Like, I, and it's very kind of dis- discerning at this point that one, she's found, there's human remains been found on the property. And now there's cops being like, hey, can we search your property because we've had these people go missing? And your husband's telling you, don't let them search anything. Like, at at what point do the clues, like, does it come into the point where it's like, okay, me thinks something is amiss here. Right. You know? And Julie faces a lot of criticism for apparently, like, what she said was she just didn't know. And a lot of people are like, how did you not know? How did you not know? Especially when your son said he found, like, bones and skulls and stuff on the property. It's not like this is just, oh, we're on a whim. You know? Like, or, you know, the detectives are kind of on a whim at this point, you know? But, But she had information that would definitely implicate him. Right. Um, because she refused and they did not have enough for a search warrant, they used an infrared camera to perform an aerial search of the property. The results were really inconclusive. They weren't enough to get a search warrant, but they definitely indicated that it was possible there were human remains on the property. Meanwhile, the Baumeister marriage started to deteriorate rapidly. Their businesses were struggling And the charity actually ended its contract with the Save-A-Lot stores. Their home was in disarray, and they actually were pending foreclosure on their property. After spending the 1995 holiday season apart, Julie filed for divorce. 
Julie hired an attorney and she told the attorney about the bones they found on the property earlier in 1995. But this attorney is bound by attorney client privilege. So he can't go and tell the cops this. Like he can't do anything about it because this is attorney client privilege. There's marital privilege. So, I mean, once again, you have an attorney that knows something and can't do shit about it, which really sucks for them. Right. Yeah. It, it's like, I understand the necessity, like the necessity of having attorney client privileges and stuff like that. But damn, like she basically just confessed that, Oh, there's, there were bodies. We well, found bones and shit on our property. And, and if you ever notice, like when you watch shows and stuff, they always say the defense attorneys always say, don't tell me anything. Don't tell me yeah. Don't tell me anything. They don't want to know. And I can understand why. Like, it's it's not that they don't care about the truth, but they can't do anything about it anyway. So they're just going to do their job and try to find reasonable doubt. Right. But regardless, this is where we're at. The attorney could not share the information, but he did tell Detective Wilson not to give up on the lead. So he strongly indicated that she was on the right track. He strongly hinted, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, keep it going. Right. Keep pursuing this. In June of 1996, Herb Baumeister's behavior grew even more bizarre, if that's even remotely possible. He, he suddenly closed one of their stores without consulting Julie at all, and then took his son on an unplanned trip to Lake Wakasee. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. The family was very familiar with this location. And actually, Julie and the kids spent their summers there with family. Herb usually didn't go, though. He stayed behind to take care of the business. And Julie also learned that their joint bank account had been wiped out. She really was afraid that her estranged husband was not mentally stable and she was scared for the safety of her son. So backing up for just a second, Julie and the kids spent most summers at Lake Wasiwasi or whatever it's called. So they're at the lake most summers. Have you noticed that most of these men disappeared in the summer? Right. It's just another little thing. Julie discussed her concerns with her attorney and her attorney suggested that they should probably give the detectives the information about the bones that her son had found. Right. And she agreed and she allowed detectives to finally search the property. As they walked into the wooded area where bodies had been found 18 months before, the detectives realized they were walking on what looked like pebbles, but were actually small human bone fragments. Damn. An all-out search began, and hundreds of human bones and teeth were recovered from the property. Julie, fearing what her estranged husband might do upon learning that the detectives were finding human remains, asked a judge for an emergency order to remove her son from his father's custody. Good honor, but, like, let's just not, like, this is what finally broke the bank, and it's like, wait, (laughs) he needs to be away from his dad. Not the fact that he is just going more and more crazy, crazy, but oh no, he might get pissed off now because we're finding bones and shit on the property. I would be scared for my child, though. I mean, I would be too, but I think there should have been a lot more red flags that were thrown up. Like, uh, there were a lot more red flags thrown up than besides that. Right. You know? But I understand as a mother, she was worried about, you know, he's wiping out bank accounts, closing down stores taken their son unexpectedly and she doesn't know what to do about it so you know the attorney tells her what to do about it and they end up finding these bones and now she's really scared because what if he like goes nuts and kills himself and their son or something so the authorities go out and they remove the the bowmeister's son from herb's custody now even though They have found human remains on the property. Indianapolis detectives, Mary Wilson, is not in charge now because these bones were found in Hamilton County. Hamilton County detectives had jurisdiction and they declined to arrest Herbert Bowmeister at the time, despite they've already found numerous human remains. 
devil's advocate. There was no link between him and the bones, though. Besides, except that they were on their, his property. Well, and then you have the informant. Is I don't know. And you have him. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So uh, there's, again, a lot of criticism that he should have been arrested right then and there. But the detectives in Hamilton County said that they wanted to get a better picture of what they were dealing with before they arrested and interrogated Herb. Detectives found at least seven left metacarpal bones, indicating there were at least seven men buried on the property. The bones were positively linked to four of the missing men, Richard Hamilton, Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, and Manuel Resendez. Despite this, Hamilton County detectives still did not arrest Herbert Bollmeister. They explained they wanted to get a better picture of what they were dealing with. Meanwhile, Herbert Bollmeister goes on the run. Well, there goes that idea. Yeah. Julie was living in fear, not knowing where her husband was. Herbert had reached out to his brother, requesting money be wired to him. His brother told the authorities that he sent money to an area in Michigan near the Canadian border. On July 3, 1996, 49-year-old Herbert Baumeister was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in Ontario, Canada. He left a suicide note saying that he was sad about his failing business and his failing marriage, but he did not admit to any murders. That's unfortunate. That is an unfortunate. They like, should have taken him into custody when they had the chance. Like, yeah. Hindsight being 2020. Yeah, they should have. Definitely. You know? After his death, another man came forward and said that he had had a sexual relationship with Herb Baumeister. He confirmed that Herb enjoyed erotic asphyxiation. Despite the fact that Herb was living a double life and killing men, the media portrays him as a businessman and landowner. So, like, in the headlines, it'll say, like, businessman and landowner's suicide um, prompts further investigation of his property. Like, they don't, they really paint him still in this affluent light. He doesn't get the silk screen, of, like, the black, like, or uh, smoke screen of... The, oh, he's just a homosexual. Like, he, no, they're trying to, like, they're just like, oh, no, he was such a good man in our community. Look at the charities he did and all that, like, all the businesses that he ran. Such a good guy. Yeah. And meanwhile, they portray the victims as gay men who may have been sex workers. They There's really no proof of that. And then they blame the victims basically for their own deaths because of their lifestyle. And so, again, this gay community is re-victimized again. And right. mind you, this is not long after the less, Larry Eiler situation. Less, less than 10 years. So, I mean, you just have this whole community feeling like law enforcement and the general media is really not in on their side. It's I, not interested I, in protecting them no. and blames them for whatever happens to them. Yeah, and it seems like I would be like, I'm surprised that there's still gay men in like in that area well and you have you know? to remember this is also still sort of the height of the aids epidemic in which gay men were being extremely stigmatized and, and blamed if they caught hiv that it was their own fault behavioral science experts believe that the first murder herb committed was likely accidental and was done during an episode of erotic asphyxiation However, this is the behavioral science experts from the FBI. They said after this, he had taken it so far that he was never going to reach sexual gratification again without killing. And so after that first one, which was probably an accident, he set out knowing he was going to kill more men. That's shitty. Because it's the only way he could get off. Like, how messed up is that? Yeah, that's shitty. And they furthermore said that Herb Baumeister felt comfortable enough to bring the bodies closer and closer to his home. This was evidenced by where they found the bones and the times of the disappearance. Like he kept dumping those bodies closer and closer to his back door. And this suggested to the experts that he had been killing for some time. 
The time frames of the disappearances all coincided with times when Julie and the kids were at the lake with the family during the spring and summer months. The information led authorities in Ohio to take a closer look at Herb Baumeister as a potential suspect in the I-70 murders. The I-70 murders occurred between 1980 and 1991. They stopped in 1992 suddenly, which ironically is the same year that the Baumeisters purchased Fox Hollow Farms. All the victims of the I-70 murders were gay men who disappeared from Indianapolis gay bars. In the 1980s, Herb Baumeister was making several trips to Ohio for business and took I-70 along the way. Michael Sean Petrie, age 15, was found naked and murdered in Hamilton County, Indiana, June 16, 1980. The cause of death was strangulation. Maurice Taylor, age 22, was found in Ruralton, Hamilton County, in July of 1982. Maurice was believed to have been strangled as well. Delvoid Lee Baker, age 14, was found nude and strangled October 3, 1982. Detectives learned the boy was prostituting himself outside gay bars the night before. Michael Riley, age 22, disappeared May 28, 1983, after visiting a gay nightclub in Indianapolis. He was last seen leaving, um, leaving with a man... In 1998, witnesses confirmed that the man they had seen Riley leaving with was Herbert Baumeister. Michael's body was found in a ditch on June 5, 1983. He had been strangled. strangled. Eric Rocker, age 17, vanished on May 7, 1985. His partially nude body was found in Preble County, Ohio. He had a burn mark on his shoulder and had been strangled with a rope. Michael Glenn, age 29, was found only in his underwear on August 15, 1986 in Ohio. Michael had disappeared from Indianapolis. James Boyd Robbins, age 21, was found October 17, 1987 along I-70. He had also been strangled. He had disappeared just two days earlier from Indianapolis. Stephen Elliott was found murdered in Ohio on August 12, 1989, near I-70. He had been strangled. Stephen's father told authorities his son was gay, involved in prostitution, and a drug addict. His parents basically said his lifestyle was why he ended up murdered. Clay Russell Boatman, age 32, was a licensed practical nurse from Indiana who disappeared from a gay bar in Indianapolis on August 14, 1990. His body was found murdered in Ohio and the cause of death was strangulation. I'm not done yet. Thomas Ray Clevenger, age 18, was murdered and found in Greenville, Ohio. He had disappeared from Indianapolis as well. Otto Baker was found in a ditch in Henry County, Indiana on August 6, 1991. He was 42 years old. Both of these victims are believed to be victims of the I-70 killer as well. And most people believe that Herbert Baumeister was the I-70 killer. They believe that once he bought the large property, he stopped dumping the bodies and started burying them on his property instead, which coincides with the timeline of when the I-70 murders stopped and the Fox Hollow Farms disappearances started. started. Herbert is to believe to have killed at least 21 men, but possibly as many as 50. Fuck. Some remains found on the Baumeister property are still not identified. New DNA testing was performed in the summer of 2023 in an effort to finally identify the victims of the serial killer referred to as Herbert the Pervert. What the fuck? Right? Like. And he lived like he was so not on the radar because he was this family man, business owner, landowner of this very large property. He was a wealthy white man right god dang like With a family and so to he... and to like it really 
kind of hits home that there were two of them going at the same time. Right. Like it, and it was like, and they had the same and like the same areas that they were hitting up and shit. Like, oh my god. Yeah, like if if that was not a horrible enough time to be a gay man when you have this AIDS epidemic going on and all this stigma, and then you've got two different serial killers hunting in the same location. Yeah. Jeez. Scroll up to the picture of Herbert Baumeister. Go down. He's like derpy looking, right? You wouldn't expect him to be a killer. No. And nobody did. Even though he was eccentric, they all just kind of thought. Once again, like we talk about this, about people having the eyes and he doesn't have the eyes at all. Like, and then you see this picture of him holding what I suspect is one of his daughters. Um, and he, he just, just looks, looks like a normal family guy. Yeah, he looks like a father, like from the 80s and early 90s. Like, I do think that his behavior and the amount of privilege he had for being a wealthy white man is partially why he wasn't suspected of things and why his wife was able to just like brush it off yeah i mean but you got to think about and i'm not blaming her in any way a lot of the victims families do blame her um especially the families of the victims that died in 1995 the summer of 1995 because those bones were found in january of 95 you know and they're like you know how stupid can you be to not believe that your husband you know to just like some people are good at hiding shit though right well and like this is a woman who in retrospect probably thinks a lot of things but you know this was a marriage where in 25 years they had sex six times three of which were presumably because she wanted to have a baby possibly all six right you know so she she married somebody and had this marriage that was very different from most people's marriages anyway herb was known to sort of call the shots like julie would say something he'd be like no we're not doing that and oh, she just kind of went with it like not that he was abusive but he was just the i don't even know if controlling's the right word he patriarchy, was just like a patriarchy yeah he just kind of called the shots period Um, But she faced a lot of criticism for how did she not know that her son, I'm sorry, that her husband was a serial killer. How could she have not known that when he was dumping the bodies in her own backyard? Well, I mean, and we got it like she was, he was doing this all whenever her and the kids were gone. Yeah. And people criticize that too. Like, what did you think was happening when you leave for months at a time and... Your husband never goes. Well, she believed that he was there to take care of the businesses. Right. Like his backstory and everything, everything sounds fine and normal. Like, oh, you guys, yeah, you guys go take a vacation and relax. You know, I'll stay back with the business. And not only that, but I'm also going to have some illicit things go on in my house and do some things that you're really not going to like. Well, and it's weird because... I do believe he was the I-70 killer. But you know, I know it's even weirder. There's another serial killer known as the I-70 killer who's also never been positively identified. Um, Do you remember the case about the girl in O'Fallon that was murdered that was shot? Yeah. And they thought it was part of the I-70 killers. Like he went on this, like he would just walk into stores near I-70 and just shoot people. For no rhyme or reason. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so like there's two I-70 killers. So it really confused me when I first read that and I had to figure out what I-70 killer they were talking about. Um, I do think that was him. I know that there's not any, as far as I know, there's no 100% conclusive evidence. Right, but I mean, the MO was all the same. The timeline is what does it for me. And the fact that, you know, like the profiler said, he got more comfortable. He had been doing this long enough that he was comfortable enough to dump bodies on his own property because right. he had been killing for like 10 years. Right. And it stopped as soon as they bought the like the farm. Mm-hmm. And that's when the disappearances started that are called the Fox Hollow Farms murders. Right. 
you know, and it was his comfort level. He was getting cocky and he was getting arrogant and he, you know, just assumed. And a lot of people said, you know, his suicide was proof of like his arrogance. Like he was going to control this to the very end. He wasn't going to admit to shit, even though in all honesty, that is probably why after he was first questioned, he started acting stranger and stranger. And that's when Julie filed for divorce. Hey, and then I, like his life was falling apart and he was trying to maintain whatever control he could. Exactly. And because he was like you just, you described him as a controlling figure, like mm -hmm. the patriarchal head of the family. Like, and he, at this point he lost all control, especially when his wife, you know, decided that I'm going against you and I'm giving, telling him, go ahead and, t you know, this is what's on. This is what we found on the property. Right. And so now this man who's been likely a serial killer for 15 years. Right. And it, everything was crashing. God, I don't understand, though. How do you find multiple bodies, right. human remains on someone's property and you don't even detain them? Yeah. I'm not even saying like press charges, right? But. That would be probable cause to detain somebody. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm at sorry, but a, Hamilton County messed up. At least make it a person of interest and be like, you can't leave. Right. But I mean, would, it, would that have fucking mattered? He probably would have killed himself in jail anyway. Right. But still, like, I still think they messed up. You know, he got to die on his own terms. Right. When he probably should have been, you know, death penalty right and got the needle right <laughs> if you guys want information on this story or any of our other stories go ahead and head to the midwestcrimefiles.com the most like the most new story is going to be on the front page just click it and scroll all the way down you can find all the references that Jeannie uses to write these amazing stories for you guys also if you guys want to become a patreon member go ahead and go to patreon.com slash the midwest crime files you can join for as little as a dollar and enjoy all the patron benefits that we have. And you know what? This is just another portion of this serial killer season. We've got another brand new serial killer story coming for you guys next week. And pretty soon we'll have a new Patreon exclusive episode as well. Yep. So until that time, guys, we will see you later. Bye. Bye.